starting a new series. Today, I figured I would play up all of the changes that are happening around here and call it All Things New, All Things New. And this is going to be a look at the weirdest book of the Bible and how the weirdest book of the Bible is more relevant today for us than ever before. When I say the weirdest book of the Bible, what book do you think I'm talking about? Pardon me? Someone said Revelation. What other book would be weird in the Bible? You got 66 choices. Apocalypse. Well, that's a more accurate, more accurate word, actually. We call it Revelation in English, but the, the Greek word is apocalypse. You're right. Any other choices? The weirdest book in the Bible? Pardon me? Chronicles? Okay, okay, interesting. Someone else said something? Ecclesiastes? Okay. So I heard something else somewhere up there. I heard someone say Song of Solomon. Yeah, Song of Solomon, a book that, that uh, was banned in some cultures. They wouldn't even let young people read this book. Too much uh, stuff about, you know, sex and all of that in the Song of Solomon. Amazing book. You should read the book. Uh, okay, the weirdest book in the Bible, if you've ever read it, by far, the majority have it right this morning. It is the book of Apocalypse, Revelation. It is the weirdest book of the Bible, at least at first glance. Um, and what we tend to do with this book, it, we go one of two directions with it. Either we just leave it alone and just don't touch it. I mean, the book is loaded with all kinds of, it's as, it's as if the writer is on some kind of narcotic, right? So he's talking about multi-headed dragons and, and bulls and horses and bottomless pits and I mean, the symbolism in it, and these scrolls are opening, and there's like global catastrophes, and you just read it, and you say, what is this, what relevance does this book have to my life? It's so bizarre. It's so strange. You have to track with all these numbers and all these images that seem to be fantasy that the author thinks is real, and what do you just do with this crazy book? So what we often do is we just leave it alone. Say, well, it has no relevance to my life anyway. It's not going to help me pay the bills. This 20th century old book talking about, you know, multi-headed dragons and the lot. So just leave it be and I'll read Proverbs or I'll read James or I'll read the Psalms. You know, those are, those are a lot easier to track with, right? Or what we'll do is we'll put our code-breaking uh, lenses on and we say, ah, I can crack the code of revelation. You know, we, we become these sort of detectives and we say, aha, now I know who the Antichrist is. It's Donald Trump or it's Barack Obama or it's Vladimir Putin or it's Ronald Reagan or it's Kim Jong-un. Now I've got it figured out and now I know what the 666 means. That's what the church does it in their they're giving in the foyer. They're enabling the 666 with that little square. That's what that is. I've got that figured out. And I know when Jesus is going to return. And, and I've got all these symbols worked out and I've calculated the code. And we get into that kind of code-breaking mentality. We watch some major news networks, you know, we say, aha. It's Gog and Magog, it's Russia, it's China, it's Japan, it's this, it's that. It's all coming together. 
and we, we think we can interpret it and we, we speculate about all the imagery. We say, oh, look, the locusts are cobra helicopters and this is the war of this and the war of that. And when we, when we do that, though, we're, we're doing a lot, of, a lot of speculation. So the question is, how is this book really relevant to our lives and what's the right way of looking at it? What's the right way of reading it? Um, we live in quite a time, don't we? Just to put things, just put time in perspective here. So we have at our fingertips now unprecedented change in, in technology and thus in culture. It is unprecedented in the history of the, of the world what we are seeing now. And many, many people, regardless of their religious or philosophical ideologies and backgrounds, they're saying this. They're saying, look at the cultural shifts that are happening around the world that are driven by these tremendous changes in technology that we see. So you say, well, what's that got to do with Revelation? Well, let, let, me, let me show you. Just, just, just digress with me a little. Do, do you know what this is? This is a... Hello? Hello? So we used to use these back in, I think, this model. Uh, this is an RCA made in Canada. The little thing even turns at the bottom, right? And this, I think, is from 1940. Uh, in my little thrift store that I run there for Mission Nouvelle Génération, sometimes we get some really cool stuff in there, like this old like this old phone that I brought in. By the way, you can shop there. You don't have to be a client of the food bank to go and shop there. You should come and visit me sometime, especially if you like VHS videotapes for kids. I have lots of those. But anyways, uh, you, this used to be quite the technology because we, it was actually powered by the phone line. Wow, it drew power from what was going through the phone lines. So this was like revolutionary for people. And so you fast forward, relatively speaking, not that long. And now you've got this thing, which is a model that's, you know, two years old. So it's out of date. But with this device, I have access to information at light speed. I can see on this device something from anywhere, an image, a live image from anywhere in the world with this device. I have access at my fingertips to what would be called back in the day, a supercomputer is at my fingertips and it's at your fingertips as well. And what we're seeing now is unprecedented change at speeds that we've never seen. So within three, six months, this thing is out of date. And, you know, you got to upgrade to another model, iPhone 10, 11, 12. I don't know when it's going to stop. You know, maybe when Jesus returns, they'll stop making iPhones. But the, the technology has altered culture. And it's altered culture arguably around the world. And we see culture change. Culture has always changed, but it's never changed this fast. And so now we have all this information at our fingertips. Theory says we're more connected than ever before. I mean, you can communicate with somebody sitting in your chair right now. You can communicate with somebody around the world instantly, visually, via FaceTime or Skype or whatever application you want to use. 
for free, at least bandwidth permitting. You can do that while you're listening to me speak. This is really something. I mean, we used to watch this on television 30, 40 years ago even and say, that's, that's alien. You must be an alien from Mars. I, I joke with, with our daughter and say, wow, you know, if when I was 13, 14, 15, if we had this kind of technology and someone showed up on our doorstep and said, hey, look, look what we can do with this wireless small device, we would all look at the person and say, are you an alien? Do you come from another planet? Are you from Star Trek? Like some of the technology we use is more advanced than what we saw in Star Trek in the 1950s. So we have to stop and say, well, hold on. We've got, we've got rates of change here that are incredibly fast. And these technological changes, they revolutionize society. This greater rate of change than even the Industrial Revolution, which, which people thought changed everything. Well, now it's like a technological revolution, the, the likes of which we've never seen, and it affects culture. But even with all of this interconnectedness and even with all the ability that we have, does it, does it seem a little strange that we are lonelier than ever, than ever before? And there's all kinds of studies that are showing this, in particular in North American culture, but even around the world. People are more lonely. People are more isolated. Do you know, and I've said this before, young adults do not date anymore. They do not date. They do not even know how to date. Uh, young adults know about the hookup culture, which they may use a device like this to meet somebody on the internet and have a, you know, a, a one-night stand, so to speak, with the person. They may not even know their name, and they may just leave them alone afterward. They know how to do that, but they do not know how to have a healthy you know, relationship together that could lead to marriage. Young adults do not date anymore. It's a foreign concept to them, especially this generation that's coming up uh, that's a little younger, the Generation Z, as it's called. They don't, they don't know this concept anymore. Lonelier than ever, even with all of this change around the world, emotionally, uh, people are sick, mental illness is on the rise, and people are more lonely than ever, even with everything that we have. Now we live in a time where it's not wow, there was a terrorist attack. It's where was the attack and how many people died. So we live in an age now in a time where anything can happen in any time, any place, can be totally random, public event, and there can be something that happens. People live with this now as a reality, and this is the first time where it, this is now a global reality that we've all learned to adapt to. We see violence seemingly on the increase in ways. I mean, I know we get the information faster, but I mean, you've got people driving their, driving their vehicles through, through downtown Toronto. You've got shootings that happen now, especially our neighbors to the south. It's like every week. You realize that young people, especially down south, but it does happen in Canada, they go to school with the reality that there could be a shooting today in my school. Can you imagine being a teenager and growing up in that type of atmosphere? What will I do if someone pulls out a gun today? What will I do if I get shot? How will I react? This is what we live in now. Uh, we see 
unprecedented. The missiologists tell us this, that persecution of Christians and of the church worldwide is unprecedented now. So the last 100 years, more Christians have been imprisoned, executed for their faith than all of the previous centuries of church history combined. So you look at all of this stuff, you look at things like injustice, which is always there, and then you open up this weirdest book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and you start to see the relevance of this strange but amazing book written in the first century by the Apostle John, most probably the same Apostle John that we know from the Gospels and the three letters that he wrote. He, he tells us that he's exiled on this little island called Patmos, which is off of the coast of what is now Turkey. And he is writing to an audience of a number of Christians from seven, seven different churches, and there's, there's quite a raging debate as to when he wrote this book. Because depending on when he wrote it, you have a position about future events that's dictated by when he supposedly wrote the book. So on the screen, you'll see a couple of the emperors that the scholars debate. Did, did John write this under Emperor Nero, who reigned from 54 to 68? Or did he write it under Domitian, who reigned from 81 to 96? Why is this important? Well, because in AD 70, the temple in Jerusalem was completely destroyed. Only one retaining wall of the temple uh, remains. They call it the Wailing Wall. And so if he wrote the book pre-AD 70, then maybe all of the crazy stuff about disaster and catastrophe is actually referring to the destruction of the temple which happened in 70. But on the other hand, if he wrote it after 70, then maybe he's talking about events that will take place in the distant future. Who knows? Regardless, both of these characters here, Nero and Domitian, were not kind to Christians. You talk about persecution of Christians. Uh, Nero uh, set a fire to the city of Rome in 64 and decided to blame the Christians for it. He said, well, I, I don't want to get caught by setting this fire. There's debate as to why he said it. But what he did was he just pegged the Christians and pegged the church. And persecution was, was very normal for them back then. Domitian was the guy who called himself the Lord God. And so any religious view that did not worship him, he would persecute. So you have a situation there where the audience of this, this bizarre book Facing persecution, facing injustice, facing times of change, rapid, rapid change. And so you look and you say there are certain parallels to what they experienced and what we experience today. So the relevance of the book starts to leap out of the pages if you're understanding some of the background. If you look at the audience, you see it on the screen there. I don't know if you can read it, uh, but you have, you have seven churches there. And the way that they're listed in the book of Revelation is in a circle, like a, like a paper route. So you see Patmos at the bottom. It's highlighted kind of in pink. And then Ephesus and Smyrna, and you go up to Pergamum and Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. That's how they're listed in the book. And it's like a little route that somebody would deliver the newspaper to. This is the original audience of this letter. Now, well, it's not exactly a letter. It's, well, it's really all kinds of things. 
So the first thing that you have to do, if you're going to get something out of the book of Revelation, if you're going to see how relevant it is to your life, you have to understand what in the world are we dealing with when we look at this book. What kind of book is it? What is the, I'll use the word, genre of literature that we're dealing with here? And this is where it gets really, really interesting because there's nothing like the book of Revelation in the entire Bible. And for that time in the ancient world, there's nothing like it. It's very, very strange. Why? Because Revelation is a hybrid of really three, at least three different kinds of literature. So first of all, Revelation is what you, what you can call, and you use the name properly, baby, and it's, a, it's an apocalypse. So Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation, it says, of Jesus Christ. The apocalypse is the word there, which God gave him to show his servants was what must soon take place. It's an apocalypse. So apocalyptic literature, back in that time and in that day, you have dozens of them. And in apocalyptic literature, you would have a, a person writing to an audience where there's persecution, injustice, all these kinds of things happening to them. And what the apocalypse would do is it would peel back the curtain and show the unseen world and what was going on in the unseen world, the supernatural world of the time. And it would envision a future salvation usually with a very violent conclusion. And apocalypses, there are dozens of them from about 200 B.C. to 200 A.D. The really unique thing about the book of Revelation, it, which sets it apart from all the other apocalypses of that time, is the author identifies himself. So every other one of these apocalypses, you have a pseudonym. It's somebody else supposedly wrote it, but it, obviously that person wasn't the original writer. And in the apocalypse, it says these words should be sealed into a future, until a, a future date, but not the book of Revelation. Revelation, curiously enough, the author boldly identifies himself as none other than John. And he says where he is. He says where he's on the island of Patmos. And he also says that these words should be opened. So it's very unique in that sense when you're dealing with this kind of apocalypse, this kind of literature. In, in apocalyptic literature, you have all these fantasies. The imagery is very wild. You've got numbers and, and sequences of things, almost reads like a code. This is very, very common in that style of literature. And John, he's not different. A lot of it draws on some of the themes in the Old Testament from Ezekiel and Isaiah and Zechariah about this kind of violent conclusion to history. And this is what that kind of literature was. But not only is Revelation an apocalypse, Revelation, we're told, is also prophecy. So verse 3, uh, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. How many of you want to be blessed? Yeah, you should read the book. It says you'll be blessed if you read it. Why don't you try? Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. So the author's saying this is prophetic, what I'm putting on the paper here. And we've talked about this before, but prophecy, you see two kinds in the Bible. You see the kind of predictive prophecy where God says such and such is going to happen. 
but you also see a more of a, of a proclaiming type of prophecy where God says, this is what the Lord says. This is my mind. This is my heart. This is my view, if you will, on the matter. And in Revelation, you see a mishmash of it. You see a little bit of predictive, you see a little bit of proclamation, but you definitely, definitely are seeing prophecy. So not only is it apocalypse, not only is it prophecy, but it also is an epistle, a fancy word for a letter. So verse 4, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, the ones that we just showed on the screen. So that's that's a letter. We have a number of these letters in the New Testament. Paul wrote many of them. But John is saying, I've got one. It's not to one church. It's to seven. So this is very, very strange. We're dealing with a hybrid of different genres of literature here. And it's really important that you know this because if you don't, you're not going to approach the book with a whole lot of respect. You're just going to jump to CNN and Fox News and do the whole code-breaking thing, or you're just going to say, forget it. You have to be a Bible scholar to understand this book. It goes on the shelf. I'll stick with Proverbs, James, and the Psalms. Thank you very much. But you're missing a blessing if you don't see, read, understand, and apply this book to your life, but you must understand what it is before you approach it. So I'm going to cover... Pretty well, the whole book of Revelation in this series, but I'm going to do it in big, big chunks. Uh, Let me give you a challenge and a piece of advice when you're reading this book. If you want to get something out of it, read it in large chunks. At least, I would say, at least three chapters at a time. You say, excuse me, I don't even read one chapter a day. I don't even read one chapter a week. Well, that's why I tell you it's a challenge. But you really want to get something out of this book and you really want to see the, the, the impact of it in your life as you live in this time of unprecedented change and of all this stuff happening on planet Earth, read it in big chunks and take that challenge. Nice cup of coffee, nice cup of tea. It'll probably take you a half an hour just to read three chapters. But don't, please, don't, don't, don't sit there and try and break codes and figure out what fantasy means what and what does this, this multi-headed beast mean and this horns and all this stuff? Which leader is this? Which ruler is this? Don't read it that way. This is a book that's written to people who were persecuted. This is written to a people who didn't have a lot of time to sit there and analyze it line by line. It's a letter. Any of you receive a letter and you, write, you read it line by line? Usually when you receive a letter, you read the whole thing. If it's a long letter, you probably will read the whole thing right through, especially if the author is really, really important. If you know you're getting money because you'll read the letter, you'll probably read the whole letter, even if it's long, right? If it's from Revenue Canada or Revenue Quebec, well, you might as well read the whole letter because there could be, you know, a conclusion that's important to you. When you're reading the book of Revelation, read it in big chunks. And take the code-breaking mentality out of your mind because this is not what the original audience was doing. They were reading this book so that they would be encouraged in this time of persecution that they were facing. So major theme from the first three chapters of the book of Revelation is very, very simple. Jesus is powerful and Jesus is personal. He's powerful and he's personal. This is what the author is trying to communicate just in the opening 
three chapters. Let me give you some examples of this, and you can open the book in your, in your lap or on your smartphone, whatever. It's Revelation chapter 1 to 3. I'm just going to camp there for a few minutes uh, as, we, as we start wrapping things up. Uh, in about 15, 20 minutes, okay? Look, look, what, look what Jesus, how Jesus is presented here. So chapter one and, and verse eight, I am the alpha and the omega who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. It is clearly a presentation of Jesus as none other than God almighty himself. I've debated Jehovah's Witnesses on this so many times. Uh, there's an old argument, we call it the first and the last. And you go to Revelation chapter 1 and you see Jesus presented as the first and the last, the, the, the Alpha and the Omega and the, the cult groups and the Jehovah's Witnesses. They say, well, no, that's not talking about God. Uh, but then when you go to the last chapter of Revelation, you'll see the first and the last is the Alpha and the Omega, who is the Almighty God. So clearly, Jesus, right from the beginning of the book, is being presented as God himself. Chapter 1 and verse 13, John sees this, this, this being standing there. He says, I, I, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, which supposedly represents the churches. And among the lampstands was one like a son of man. This is out of the book of Daniel, and you read this description, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash, his head and hair white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes were like a blazing fire, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. I mean, it's an amazing description what he sees there. And his reaction is, I fell at his feet as though dead. I mean, it's Jesus presented in power, Jesus presented in a glorified way. This is very different than the way that we see Jesus presented in the Gospels. Here, he is shown in his full glory, magnified and powerful as God, not that he wasn't God in the, in the pages of the Gospels, but this is a very different presentation that we're looking at. It's sort of like the transfiguration on steroids. I mean, it is, it is magnificent imagery, the way that we're presented uh, this Jesus. I am the first and the last in Revelation 1 and 17. Uh, him who holds the seven stars, which shows his authority over the churches. The first and the last who died and came to life, who has the sharp double-edged sword, who holds the sevenfold spirit of God, again showing authority, who holds the key of David, who is the ruler of God's creation, all these things clearly there to show us that Jesus Christ is powerful. This is who he is, and he is being revealed here as incredibly powerful with authority and might and glory and majesty and all of these things. I mean, the descriptions are just very, very significant that we see there. Uh, but not only is he powerful, but he is personal. And when he addresses these churches, you see some very striking remarks uh, that are very, very personal. And this is what we take for granted when we read the book. We're so busy trying to break codes that we miss the obvious 
And what's being shown here is that Jesus is very personal. Even though he is almighty, even though he is so powerful, you know, that John fell at his feet as though dead when he saw him. He is very, very personal. So Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2, addressing the church in Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. I know that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You have persevered. You have endured hardship for my name. You have not grown weary. I know, I know, I know your deeds. Uh, Revelation 2 and 19, uh, or sorry, and, uh, and chapter 9. Uh, I know your afflictions. I know your poverty, yet you are rich. Uh, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, he says. Again, writing to a church in a context of persecution, false doctrine, all this kind of stuff. To the church in Pergamum, uh, chapter 2 and verse 13, I know where you live. Uh, I know that you remain true to my name. To the church in Thyatira, I know your deeds. I know your love and faith, your service, your perseverance, that you, you are now doing more than you did at first. The church in Sardis, I know your deeds. Uh, the church in Philadelphia, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I, I know that you have little strength, and you, yet you have kept my word. The church in Laodicea, I know your deeds. He's very, very personal. And he's addressing them as if he knows them very, very well. And it, it's important for us to, to acknowledge this because if Jesus is God, then he knows your deeds too. He knows your deeds. He knows your thoughts. He knows your motives. He knows your intentions. He knows your behavior. He knows your past. He knows your present. He knows your future. He's already in your future if you can figure that one out. He's in the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. So he knows you. He's very, very personal. The, the challenge that I have for you today and that these first three chapters have for us is, do you know him? He knows you, but do you know him? So as he's addressing each of these churches, he has a criticism sometimes. He has something positive to say. Usually he starts with the positive, which is a good, a good lesson. If you're going to criticize someone, start with something positive. But usually there, there's a little bit of both. But when you look at it, you say, wow, uh, for example, the church in Ephesus, uh, I know your deeds, your hard work. I, I know all these good things about you, yet I hold this against you, Ephesians. You have forsaken your first love. In other words, do, do you know me? You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Very personal challenge and rebuke there. And what is he saying? Do you know me? I know you, but do you know me? Remember the height which you have fallen from. 
to the church in Smyrna, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who overcomes will not uh, be hurt at all by the second death. We'll see what that is later. The church in Pergamum. Uh, I have a few things against you, he says. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And again, you can read Balaam from the Old Testament. But again, this is a rebuke. This is a challenge. This is a chastisement. He's saying, what's happened to the way that you live for me? What's happened? You're starting to slip away. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name known only to them who receive it. Blessing for those who persevere. To the church in Thyatira, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman. Apparently, there was a woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, but she misleads people. Uh, you need to fix your, your behavior is what he's saying there. The church in Sardis, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead, he says. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Uh, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. He's challenging them in the context of a relationship. He knows them. But do they know him? And are they showing that by the way that they live their lives? Uh, Revelation chapter 3, again, talking to the church in Laodicea. This is a famous passage quoted often. I know your deeds that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other, but you're, you're lukewarm. And so I'm going to reject you. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I have required wealth. Have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you don't realize that you're poor, he says. And so amazing, you say, well, that's such a harsh thing. Well, it's a rebuke, but it's a rebuke in the context of a relationship. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone comes, uh, anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This is in the context of a relationship. It's not a salvation verse, it's a worship verse. So he's challenging these churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's clear, Jesus knows us. But do we know him? You say, well, of course. I mean, what are we here for? You know, that's why we go to church and all of that. Can I just, can I just tell you, and I feel compelled to tell you this today. You can go to church all your life. You can be involved in the church life. You can teach kids. You can count the money. You can even be honest counting the money. You know, you can, you can be a good person. You can be baptized. You can be faithful to your spouse. You can do all. You can walk through all the motions. But this is not what's required for salvation. You have to have a personal relationship with Jesus, a personal revelation of him, a personal experience with him, and you can look the part on the outside, but what's really going on on the inside? Do you know him? 
Even the Apostle Paul in Philippians said, I want to know him. I want to know Christ crucified and somehow attained to the resurrection of the dead. That's the Apostle Paul talking. He's saying, I want to know him. And this is the cry that Jesus has for these churches right in the, in the opening act, as it were, of the book of Revelation. Yes, you're being persecuted. Yes, you live in a time of change. Yes, there's injustice. Yes, there's all these things. But do you know me? Because I know you. But do you know me? Now, there, there's an idea that, that floats around from time to time in church circles. And, and I, find it, I find it to be a problem. Uh, this idea that, well, you know, people don't really need to necessarily call specifically on Jesus. They don't need necessarily a personal kind of born-again experience with Jesus. I mean, general revelation, as it's called, should be enough. And, you know, we look at the stars and we look at the creation. We say, well, there must be a God and, and probably there's only one God. And isn't that enough? And do people really need to call upon Jesus to be saved? Isn't general revelation? enough. I need to tell you that you don't only need general revelation, you need special revelation. You need a clear encounter and experience with the risen Christ. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. There's often the question that's asked, and we've talked about this before, well, what happens to people who never hear? And Paul answers the question. He says, well, how can people call upon one whom they've never heard of? And how can they, can they call upon that person and hear upon that person, that person of Jesus, if nobody tells them? And how can someone tell them unless they are sent? So this idea, the whole movement of the church, the whole idea of missions and evangelism is because people need a personal experience with Jesus. You, again, you can go to church all your life, but miss the personal Christ. And you need to have that as, a, as something that is, that is uniquely yours. I, I remember a lady, a, a senior lady, I'm still good friends with her. And she said, Pastor, you know, I, I don't know when there was the moment of conversion, so to speak. I just realized that I loved Jesus and that I had a relationship with him. And I began to talk to him as a friend, and he began to talk to me. I don't even know when it happened. It happened so naturally. And, and she always used to wonder, she said, well, is that a problem? I said, no, that means you have a personal experience with the risen Christ, and it's according to your kind of wrapping paper. But you need to have that, friends. You can't just say, well, there's a God somewhere. And then, well, if you get to heaven, you say, well, Oh, you're the God that I've been worshiping. You're Jesus. No, it doesn't work like that. When, you, when you're in heaven and when you come to meet Christ, it's going to be, you're the one that I've been worshiping. You're the Jesus that I now see face to face. You're the one who's been speaking to me, and now I see you face to face. Now I see you as you are. I saw glimpses and pieces of parts, pieces and parts, but now I see you as you are. I don't know why, but I just feel compelled to tell you today, don't just go through the motions of being a churched person. It's not enough. It's great to be part of a faith community. It's great to belong. It's great to be loved and, be, and, and, and love other people. But you do that in the context of a relationship with Jesus. 
And if you never have that relationship with him, if you never can say with conviction, I know him, then the book of Revelation is for you. Because it challenges you to say, okay, Jesus knows me, but do I, even if I've been in church all my life, do I, can I say with conviction that I know him? Can you stand with me, please?